Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. I have a story I want to share with you. There was a farmer who hired some people to go work in his field, and he said, I'll pay you a day's wages. They agreed, a day's wages is fair. So they went to work. A little bit later in the day, not too much later, he went to another group and he said, I'll hire you to go work in my field and I'll pay you whatever's fair. He didn't set a price this time. And they trusted the man and said, well, if he's going to be fair, we'll, we'll work for him. So he went to another group and told them the same thing a little bit later in the day. And would you please go and work for me in the field and I'll do whatever's fair and they agreed and then when there was only one hour left he went and found a final group and this last group is standing there and the man says why are you not working no man's hired us well he said go work in my field I'll pay you whatever's fair now when it came time to pay the hired help the farmer said call him to be paid and he called the last group first and he said, pay them a full day's wages. Well, now the other groups who are standing around were aware that the group that only worked one hour got paid a whole day's wages. So what do you think they began to think? We're going to get a bonus. This man has given the one hour group a full day's wages. What do you think we're going to get? And the next group came, and he paid them a full day's wages, which wasn't as, as, as big of a boon as the first group, but it was still more than they had thought they would get because they only worked a partial day. The third group came. They got a day's wages. Now, <clears throat> the last group who had worked the entire day said everybody got more than they had actually worked for. Wonder what we're going to get. So the first group came in, and he gave them a day's wages. Now, how do you feel about that? That's the question. Because you have to imagine how the people felt that Jesus was telling this story to. How did that make them feel? Well, in the story, the group that got worked all day long and only got a day's wages had a problem with this. Wait a minute. We worked all day long. They worked one hour. We all got paid the same. Now, this is another one of those three-point parables. And the reason we have three points is because we have three groups from which we learn something. And the reason we have three groups is because the first group stands by itself. The last three groups were blessed with extra. That stands as the second and then the person who did the paying is the third. That's the way we divide this up. So the first group is the only one of those who worked exactly for what they 
bargained they was going to work for everybody else got a special blessing out of that that's where we get the three groups and the three points we get out of this but that's not really the only way of dividing uh, this up as well uh, there's there's another way and somebody has suggested that this parable teaches us about God's righteousness it, and God's sovereignty and God's goodness. But that's not contradictory to the three lessons we're going to learn from these three groups. So that if you have my notes, you can see these two different ways of, of outlining this, but how they all meld together. What we can learn about God, what we can learn about us, and uh, what we can learn from the three points. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take all those and put them together. And I'm going to make my own three-point outline, what we learned about God, what we learn about us, and what we learn about eternity. And when I do this, that will encompass all of these points that I have presented to you. Now, do you remember when I said last week, context is king? It's so very important you know what the backgrounds of these biblical stories are. What is it that prompted Jesus just to suddenly tell this story about these laborers in the field? Well, you have to back up to the 19th chapter of Matthew to get the context because there is really no break between what Jesus was talking about in chapter 19 and the parable of the laborers of the field in chapter 20. So if you don't know what happened in chapter 19, you don't know why Jesus told in this story. You don't know the context of it. So I'm going to back up to the 19th chapter and very quickly summarize that parable, or not that parable, but that story that happened, that event that happened in the 19th chapter to tell you why Jesus told them the parable in the 20th chapter. There's a rich young man that comes to Jesus and he says, how can I obtain eternal life? And Jesus said, well, keep the commandments. And the young man says, which ones? And Jesus listed off just to kind of uh, give an exemplary list of the commandments and he hit on the big ones he said well the commandments you know don't murder don't steal don't lie honor your father and the mother and then the young man said I've done this all my life but I still lack something he must have sensed in his heart I just don't feel a completion I need something else I see things in your disciples that I don't see in myself a joy, a confidence, there's a faith. That, 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 what is it that they have that I don't have? So he asked that question. What, what am I lacking? I keep the commandments. Why don't I feel like my life is like theirs? And Jesus zeroed in on the specific problem that this rich young man had. He said, if you will sell everything that you own and give it to the poor and follow me, then you will have treasure in heaven. And the young man found this an insurmountable obstacle, an impassable barrier. He went away sad. He said, I can't do that. He would refuse to exchange his earthly riches for heavenly riches. His earthly treasure is more important to him than his eternal treasure. And he just, the Bible says he went away sad. And when he did that, this prompted Jesus to turn to his disciples and tell them, Truly I tell you, it's hard 
for someone who is rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. He said the same thing twice, except he just uh, added to it, made a special emphasis the second time he said it. When, when his disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So lest anybody says rich people can't go to heaven, that's not what Jesus said. He said it takes a work of God to be able to overcome some of these things that stand between us and God. So it's impossible with man, but with God, anything's possible. It's even possible for rich people to be saved. And Peter responds to this. When he's watched this encounter between the rich young man and Jesus... And Jesus telling him, the thing that stands between you and God that is making you so insecure and so miserable is your riches. And if you will give those up and follow me, you will find the kind of joy and peace my disciples have. And the young man saying, I can't do it. This is more important to me than what you're promising me for eternity. And Peter's processing all of this. And then when Jesus gets done talking about how hard it is for people to get by their riches and get into heaven, Peter says, let me remind you, Lord, we have left everything. Just like Jesus challenged this rich young ruler. We've left everything to follow you. And notice what Peter says next. What do we get? When we get to heaven. He was expecting something. We've left it all. What's that worth in eternity? And Jesus said to them, I truly tell you at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones. So he's saying that there's going to be a special place for the apostles. But that's not really his answer. Here's the interesting part of his answer. He said, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Then he concludes this by saying, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Now, if you go back to the 20th chapter and read that parable of the laborers in the field, whenever Jesus describes that farmer calling the groups together to pay them, and the last gets paid first, and the first gets paid last, and then they all get paid the same, then Jesus comes out of the context of the story and speaks to those around him and says, Therefore, learn from this, there's one thing, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Now, do you see how that ties in to the previous chapter? You cannot understand what's going on in the 20th chapter until you understand the setting that brought us there in the 19th chapter. So what Jesus is doing is he tells this whole parable to explain in better terms what it means for the first to be last and the last shall be first. 
Here's what we learn from this. First of all, about God. We learn something from this parable about God's righteousness. His rightness as depicted in the character in this parable. Depicted in the promise of the landowner, I will treat you fairly. Nobody needs to worry about that. I'm fair. Now that's picturing God. We learn God is fair. Don't worry, people. When you get there, you're not going to be shortchanged. Jesus had said when answering Peter, what's in it for us? Don't worry about that, Peter. I'm telling you, anybody who has committed to follow me, anybody who has made God number one in their life, is going to receive a hundredfold more, which it's not, we're not talking about exact figures. We're talking about an expression that means it's indescribable how much more it's going to mean to you that you gave your all for God here. You cannot calculate it. You cannot measure it, what it's going to mean to you. Now, how many of you like money and things? <laughs> and how many of you are honest with me today? <laughs> It's just something that's important to us. We don't want to be destitute. We may not be wholly materialistic. We may not need more money, want more money than we need. But let's face it. You're getting up and you're going to work. You planned your life. You're in retirement. It's all built around being comfortable enough, being able to pay your bills and have a few things that you want along the line. That's part of what seems to be important to everybody of every age, is having enough. Of course, whenever that becomes a God to us and it stands between us and God, that becomes a real problem, doesn't it? And for this rich young man, that became a problem for him. See, he said, I can keep the commandments. I've kept the commandments. Seems like something's not there. Which tells me that you can go through the motions. You can go to church. You can do the things you're supposed to do. And that's not enough. You have to have God number one in your life. Just attending church doesn't gain you entrance into eternity. Making God number one in everything you do. That's what it's all about. But God's fair. And when you get to heaven, he's going to be more than fair. That's illustrated through the truths of this parable. The second thing I learned about God is we're told something about his sovereignty. Because in this parable... Whenever they complained about who was getting paid as much as they were getting paid for not working as much, then the landowner says, is not my money mine to do with what I want? Do I not have a right to do anything I want? And of course, the farmer expressing his right to do that uh, still did not answer their concern about you have a right, but is it right? So learning that God not only has a right to do whatever he wants to do with what is his, but he always does what is right puts me in the position of having no right to criticize what God does. 
I don't know what God knows. He is far wiser and far more fair and just than I am. So I, I, you know, if I have my complaints about God, it's not fair. Now, don't lift your hand, don't even nod, don't blink. But how many of you have ever prayed a prayer and said, God, it's just not fair? Of course you have. That's a kind of a stock prayer among human beings. Every once in a while we see things in life we don't understand and we go and complain. God, it's not fair. And how stupid we're going to feel when we get over there and we, we suddenly understand things we can't understand here on earth. And we remember how many times we prayed that prayer, God, it's not fair. Oh, yes, it was fair. You just don't understand. Those of you who have kids, you kind of are this little microcosm of our relationship with God. It's the parents to the kids. And how many times have your kids come to you and they've proclaimed, it's not fair. And how many times have you had to say, well, of course it's not fair. I love them more than I love you. No, you know it's fair. They're the ones that don't see it. They're the ones that are struggling with it. We're the ones that are struggling with it. Don't pray that prayer anymore. I'll promise I'll try not to if you will. But it's so tempting when things just don't look right down here on earth. God, you've got to change this. It's not fair. It's not fair to me. It is. God knows what he's doing. God can do what he wants. And you know, a lot of our anxiety comes from not accepting the fact that God is God and he can do what he wants. It's because we have expectations of what we think God ought to do. So the problem is our unwillingness to surrender to what God wants. Now I saw an interesting video this week. There is a lady that she's close to my age. Family name that she came from is Hemp Hills. The singing Hemp Hills out of Nashville, Tennessee. They're a popular family in Southern Gospel music. She went through a period of Great Depression. And she is, if you've watched any of the Bill Gaither homecoming videos, she's an occasional guest on there. And she enjoyed that so much because it was, it was her life. Singing, ministering. And then to have this opportunity with the re revival of the, uh, of the homecoming videos being so wildly popular and traveling with the homecoming team all over the world, literally, she began to get depressed. Her father had depression. His father had depression. So evidently something was running in the family. And she was struggling under this horrid depression. And suddenly, just to make the, a, a longer story as short as I can, she felt like God spoke to her and told her, your problem is you want to do what you want to do and you're not listening to what I want you to do. Because she wanted to travel with the Gaither entourage. She wanted to sing around the world. But see, down in, in the downtown area, there were people living under the bridge that eventually she began to understand that's where her heart was. Not as a star on the stage singing, but down with the homeless people where she was nobody, but ministering to them. It was called the bridge ministry. 
And when she began to get involved in that, her depression lifted. Because now she's doing what God wants her to do. Now, the reason I got into that is I, I saw a springboard into this because this was a group of people in this parable that had expectations about what God ought to do. And, and the farmer replies, I can do whatever I want. The problem is, can you accept that? Can your will become my will? Or are you going to argue with me about how things ought to be done and how you fit into my plan? God is sovereign. God is good. He can do whatever he wants and whatever he do does is right. And, and God is sovereign, God is righteous, and God is good. He is more than fair to all of us. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve heaven. We don't deserve eternal life. Not a one of us. And this is another one of those instances where you can't carry the allegorical interpretation in the parable too far because it's, it's not going to work. Not every detail has an allegorical uh, component, corresponding component to it. See, all of these workers, in a sense, they represent everybody who's rewarded with eternal life at the end. And, and the last ones hired teaches about God's grace because they didn't work as hard and as long as the first. Uh, yet they receive the same price as all the rest of them, and that's eternal life. However, where the allegorical application is limited is this, is because they were laboring to earn something, and this is where it doesn't, it doesn't cross over, because we don't labor to earn salvation. And that first group was representing those who thought, I need to be paid exactly what I worked for. But the rest were getting something more. So this is where the allegory fails. And that is, salvation is a gift. We're saved by grace. Here's what we learn about ourselves, point number two. And the good part that we learn about us is God has determined there is equality amongst all believers. That's good. God's no respecter of persons. That's good. It doesn't make any difference what social strata you come from here today. You're equal in the family of God. I may stand here on the platform and preach, but that doesn't make me better, higher in the caste system in God's family than you. We're all good. Jesus very plainly said, every person who deserts everything in life and puts me number one, they will all be rewarded. It's all equal. That's the good news. Paul makes it very clear. Every part of the body is important for the body to function properly. So you say, well, I'm not very important in the body of Christ. Yes, you are. We're all important. It takes every part of the body to make a complete body, and God wants a complete body. God's not happy with an incomplete body. Now, we learn to live with an incomplete body in this life because we can't do anything about it. If you lose something you were born with, obviously you're not what you used to be. You might have an organ removed. You might have something amputated. You might have so you're missing something you were born with. We learn to live with that. But God has a vision for a body called his church that is complete. And it takes everybody to make that and every part is important or the body's not complete. We're all equal. Some might want to argue, well, the brain's more important than the finger. 
Yeah, it is. But in the body, God's the brain. You're not the brain. We're just appendages. We're other things. God's the head. He's the life force. We're just hands and feet and eyes and ears. We're just the parts that make up the rest of it. God considers us equally important. Now here's the bad news. What we learn about ourselves from this parable is number one, we, we tend to have these moments of greediness. Just like in the parable, just demonstrated by these people who noticed everybody was getting paid more than they had worked. And when all they got was what they had bargained for, they got greedy. Now, break it down. They didn't have any right to be greedy. They agreed to work for a day's wages. They got a day's wages. Their problem was greed and jealousy. Well, that's just fine until you find out somebody got better than you got. You are happy when that new item you bought, you bargained them down and you got it for your price until you pick up the sale ad the next day and find out somebody now can get it cheaper than you got. You were happy yesterday. You were happy. You understand. You paid the money. You got the merchandise. You're happy. What you're not happy about is somebody got something better than you. And that's exactly what was going on with these people. They were happy for a day's wages. That's fair. That's honest. I work. You pay me. But wait a minute. They got it better than I did. They worked one miserable hour. And they got the same I did. And see, that's the problem that is coming out in this parable. Is we have a ten tendency to be greedy. We have a tendency to be jealous. This point is more applicable for our attitudes here on earth than it is our attitudes in heaven. Because when we get to heaven, nobody's going to gripe and complain. So this is not applicable to judgment day, the handing out of rewards. This is right now. We're talking about your life, your attitude right now. That's where we need to learn from this. That's where we need to tune up. The fact is the landowner, the fact that he paid them all the same just doesn't set well with our human standards. But the allegorical application of this parable is that God was not really interested in how long each one worked. He was only interested in one thing. They agreed to work. That was it. That we're learning something from. He came and asked him, will you work? Sure, I'll work for you. When Jesus was dying on the cross and the thief that was hanging next to him said something that was so simple, so vague, except that Jesus knew what the man's heart was and knew what he was thinking. But so he just said, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Now what does that mean? I mean, it's, it's just a handful of words, and theologians could have a heyday trying to figure out what did he mean? What was he implying? But Jesus knew what he meant. And 
Ed and I were just talking this morning very briefly. He, he was so, so thrilled when he said he had learned at one point in his life that he didn't have to pray fancy prayers for God to hear him. Now, you look at the thief on the cross, I can tell you, you don't have to know how to say fancy prayers. All you have to do is be able to let your heart cry out to God. And if you can't get the words out that sound as fancy and as polished as maybe somebody else, it's no big deal. God reads your heart. You can stumble and stammer and mutter and, and get mixed up and use the wrong syntax. You, you, can, you can mess it up. But when God sees you open your heart, He hears what you're praying. Lord, remember me. And Jesus knew what it meant. And He said, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Because it was a heart's prayer that Jesus understood. He was sorry for how he had lived. He has sorry for embarrassing him. I, he said I, in his heart, I believe you are who they say you are. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. They are killing you. I'm sorry. All of this was in his heart. And he just said, just remember me. Oh, it was enough to get him into heaven. This was the man who worked one hour in the field. When others had worked the whole day, they had borne the heat of the day, they had worked till they were bone tired. One comes in at the last possible minute and he makes it into heaven too. And anybody who deserts all things on earth and puts God number one gets a hundredfold more. Does that include the thief on the cross? It does. Does he get the day's wages like the ones that were there first? He does. He didn't do anything to get anybody saved. He didn't witness. He didn't give his life. He didn't pay tithe. He just said at the last minute, I'm sorry that I've been such a miserable wretch. Doesn't make any difference. There's no respecter of persons in God. You get to go to heaven. You don't have to live down in the slums of heaven. You get to live with everybody else. Come on in. You're the same as all because God is no respecter of persons. Final point. What we learn about eternity. What we've already learned from the previous parables that we've studied is that Jesus clearly implied there are degrees of punishment in hell. What we learn from this parable is there are no degrees of reward in heaven that set you apart for eternity. You hear what I'm saying? Listen to what I'm saying. Now there appears as though that people have different unique experiences when they're standing before God in God commending them. But there's nothing in Scripture that indicates that due to standing before God and being commended by Him, that that gains them an eternal special status above everybody else. Here's what I'm saying. When you get to heaven, you don't get a bigger crown because you served Him for more years. You don't get a bigger mansion because you witnessed to more people. You don't get a designer robe because you had a Sunday school pen that drug the ground when you walked. There's just no degrees 
that you get when you get to heaven that makes you eternally in a better place. You don't get to live in a better neighborhood than everybody else. It just doesn't happen. We all get to inherit eternal life equally. And the fact that the last shall be first and the first shall be last simply means that there will appear some before God who didn't labor near as long as other. And they still get what you get. It may appear somewhat unjust to some of you. But here's the reason it's not unjust. Because every one of us, when we inherit eternal life, gets something we don't deserve. Every single one of us gets grace. It's only because of grace. And only the most foolish of people would stand before God, would petition him, God, I don't want your grace. I want what I deserve. Oh, whoa. You don't want justice. You want grace. You want God to be giving you far more than you ever, ever, ever deserved or ever could deserve. If you think you deserve more than God has granted you, you've only deceived yourself. Would you bow your heads?